0: Praise God for them. Uh, thank you, Sister Mickey, for being so transparent and sharing some of those intimate things in your life with the body of Christ here. Uh, too often we often we uh, separate ourselves and we have our own thoughts. We never share them with one another. We don't share our burdens with each other. But thankfully, something like what Nikki did today is a good model, I think, for all of us to unburden our hearts before one another. Because we're told this is how we fulfill the law of Christ, by bearing one another's burdens. And I thought that was going to be very difficult for you, Britt, to get up after Mickey gave such an amazing testimony. God really used that, touched my heart very much, and the great song that was sung. But the Lord blessed you, and uh, thank you for that testimony. And uh, thanks for the Ives family, and especially I want to thank Grace Ives. I wish there were more Grace Ives among us. I wish I would be more like a Grace Eyes working with people and ministering to them and being burdened for them and wanting to save souls. You have made a difference in that person's life forever. Isn't that something that God could use a vessel like you or me in having an impact on someone that could change their life in this world and their life to come in the future? And most of all, I want to just praise the Lord For how God used both of you today. And I think all of us were greatly edified by what we heard. Now I've got to preach. I don't know how I'm going to match what was already said. So I'm going to have to ask my brother Alex. Would you stand up and give a... Ask the Lord to help me and bless the Word of God. And what's important about preaching, you know, is to bring that pulpit down to the people. And the people be brought up to the pulpit. And I think what we heard from our two sisters... Sort of shows where the rubber meets the road, and that's what we want out of preaching. Pray, Brother Alex. Our grace, Lord, we thank you for the sure day of revelation and the divine word. We thank you
1: for the church that you have given us, Lord, as a safe haven for our souls. Amen. For our leaders. And we thank you that, Lord, you work through the preaching of your word. We pray this morning that the Spirit will be active and that it would bear fruit in our souls, that it would bear fruit in our hearts, so that you would raise our affections to Christ, Lord, that we might behold Him and treasure Him, that we would grasp Him, the object of our faith, Lord, that He would become our world of great Christ, that you would be that treasure in the field, that we might yearn to find Him and yearn to know Him. Lord, we pray that you would grow in grace and knowledge of Him and His, Lord, unto we pray for the Give Him strength and clarity and precision as we open the Word of God for us this morning, Lord. Minister
0: to your people, please, your sheep, in Jesus' name. Amen. What book do you think in the Bible that you have the most familiarity with? If you had to take a quiz or a test or... Something of that. So what book of all of the 66 in the Bible would you say you know the best? Another one. I bet 90% of you would raise your hand and say, John, that you know the book of John better than any other book in the Bible. The second question I want to ask is, why is the book of John so popular? Oftentimes, you've probably done this, when people have said to you, Or you're trying to like grace evangelize somebody and you give them a Bible and oftentimes the question is asked, where should I start in the Bible? And what do we always say? Start with the Gospel of John. That's almost always the case. I think Romans would be a close second, but I think it's a good idea to suggest the Gospel of John. So turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, the 21st chapter. And I don't know how many of you have read John lately or read in preparation for this message, but uh, if you were to put a, a theme on the book of John, which I've been trying to do as we go journeying through the books of the New Testament, and I've come to the last of the ones of all of the New Testament that I have preached on, what topic, what heading would you put if you were to give a title to the Gospel of John? Wally, nice and loud. Amen. Very good. That's the purpose of John's writings. Anybody else have any other suggestions of what you would put for the Gospel of John? You're all so familiar with it, right? We're well, well read in it. Sometimes it is hard to pinpoint, isn't it, what is the central theme? And I think Wally hit a nerve there, because in John 21, or rather 20 verse 31, John says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. No other gospel writes with that kind of personality, with that sort of directness in the presentation of the Word. This is written for this reason that you might believe. And then when he writes the first epistle of John, these things are written to you that do believe that you might know. What? Might know that your sin's forgiven. Might know that you have eternal life. Might know, might know, might know. So, the Gospel of John, you could say, is a book for evangelizing. The first epistle of John is a book for sanctifying those who are already justified by faith in the Lord Jesus. It could be put this way when we compare John to the other Gospels, that Matthew is the Gospel of the King, Mark is the Gospel of the Servant, Luke is the Gospel of the Son of Man, and John is the Gospel of the Son of God. Let's read together John chapter 21, verse 18 to 22. Listen up as I read to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young... You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. That's Jesus speaking to Peter here. And after saying this, he said to him, Peter, "'Follow me.' Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, it is my will, that if it is my will, that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. The title that I want to give to this book is, How Much Do You Love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? Let's keep that in the back of our minds as we consider the Gospel of John and ask the question again, why is the Gospel of John so important? Why is that a good Start book to read of all the books of the Bible. What are some of the highlights of the Gospel of John that would motivate you to want to recommend the Gospel of John to somebody? Here's a couple examples. The way the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. What an introduction to this Gospel. Chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Chapter 3 verse 16, let's all say that together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A verse that everybody in this room should know and everybody in this room should take to heart. Well, I could go through the Gospel of John and quote numerous verses and say, how powerful are these verses? Another one of the major highlights of the Gospel of John is the seven I Am's in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. John 8.12 I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 10.9 I am the door. By me if any man enters in, he shall be saved. John uh. 10.11 I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Chapter 11.25 I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me though he were dead yet shall he live. Fifteen, one. I am the true vine and ye are the branches and the last of the seven of the I am's is I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father except by me. I am the way. Without the way, there is no going. I am the truth. Without the truth, there is no knowing. I am the life. Without the life, there is no living. Praise God, we can have a life worth going and knowing and living because of Jesus being the I Am. Is Jesus your I Am? Have you claimed Him as your own? Have you owned Jesus as the Lord of your life? Now, it's very obvious that the Gospel of John is very very distinct from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As you know, we call them the synoptic Gospels because of the similarity, the history, the flow, the narratives. Many of the materials in each of those Gospels are similar, if not identical sometimes, to one another. But in John, we have a whole different scenario that we don't find in the Gospels. And let me give you some instances of this. For instance, in John, John we have a Judean ministry that is concentrated upon rather than a Galilean one, which the three synoptic gospels make reference to. In John, we have Jewish feasts. Constantly, Jesus is attending the temple and making references to the feast or as a part of the feast. We have no mention of the Lord's Supper or the Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospel of John. We have that upper room discourse that is several chapters long and the washing of the disciples' feet. And here's one that probably might shock you, but in the Gospel of John we don't have the use of the word apostle. Even the twelve are not referred to as apostles. What are they referred to? Disciples disciples that is a big word i should have looked up how often the word disciple appears in the gospel of john but it's very repetitive greatly used in the gospel of john the two characters that are in the background that are important to jews would be who Moses and Abraham that were those two were the pillars for an israelite in jesus Knocks those killers down in this way. John begins the epistle by saying, "The law was given by Moses; grace and truth came by Jesus Christ." And I think if that's not at least a um, uh, a contrast with Moses, it's at least a supplement to what Moses brought. Moses brought the law, but Jesus brings grace. In truth. And we all have received grace upon grace. Something that Moses couldn't communicate whereas Jesus can. The first miracle that was done publicly by Moses, do you recall what it was? Not the snake. Now that was done in private with Pharaoh or when he stuck his hand into his bosom and he pulled it out and it became leprous. The first public miracle that was done with Moses and Aaron of course was there as well was when the water was turned to what? Blood. What was Jesus' first miracle as we contrast him with Moses? The first miracle of Jesus was turning the water into wine. And the Bible says wine is for the cheer of man. Jesus was bringing in the new wine. The ministry of Moses would be that of blood and judgment and so on, whereas Christ is highlighted by the wine representing grace and love and so on. Jesus says about Moses, again, they were saying, we are Moses' disciples. Whose disciple are you, they were saying. We're Moses' disciple." That was a boastful thing to say. That's a very prejudicial thing to say. That's a high claim to make. That's a very sectarian spirit to have. We're of Moses. if like we're covered. We're all set. And Jesus said, guess what? Moses wrote about me. Search the Scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Moses wrote of you? Yes. Abraham, the other most significant character in the book, as a matter of fact, the whole of the Bible for that matter, but for the Jews, what was their claim? They said, we are Abraham's children. We are Abraham's children. Like, again, that there's this protectiveness they think they can claim. That there's this exclusivity that they have because they're Abraham's children. And Jesus says, Yes, you are the children of Abraham, but at the same time, he goes on to say, But you're of your father, the devil. He says, If Abraham, rather, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What was that? In the same chapter, chapter 8, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. Man, that should have put them back on their heels to hear this, that a greater than Abraham is here, a greater than Moses is here, and this is like shaking the earth beneath the feet of Judaism. Or at least, let's, let's say at least, the shaky Judaism that they had uh, developed over the course of years, now they're facing the realities of who Abraham was promising about in the future, who Moses was writing about in the future, and Jesus is, in essence, saying, "I am. I am the true vine. I am the res- I am the bread. Moses gave you bread from heaven, and you all died. But I'm giving you the. My Father's giving you the true bread from heaven, and you will never die. Hallelujah." Something else about the Gospel of John, maybe this is, you, you've noticed this before, but the usage of, the, of water in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan along with others in the water. Chapter 2, he turns the water into wine. Chapter 3, Jesus says, unless you be born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's baptisms in that chapter as well. Chapter 4, he met a woman at the well, a well of water. And he says, whoever drinks of this water will perish, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of life that will never perish. Chapter 5, there's an impotent man that's laying beside the pool of water, hoping to be able to get in for the healing. Chapter 6, Jesus is walking on water. Chapter 7, Jesus says, for those who believe in Him, out of their innermost pot shall flow rivers of living water. Chapter 9, Jesus says to the blind man, Go wash in the pool of Siloam in the water. Chapter 13, He washes the disciples' feet in chapter 19, when Jesus is crucified, and the spear went through his side, and what does it say came out? Blood and what? Water. Blood and water. First Epistle of John chapter 5. It says about Jesus, the same that came not by water only, but by water and blood. Notice how they're coupled together. There's too much details here to get into some of these particular points. But in the 21st chapter. We have them fishing on the water. And Peter ends up jumping in the water. Jesus had a fish that obviously was taken out of that water that he had prepared for them on the side. Water is prominent in the Gospel of John. As I said at the beginning, everybody's familiar with the Gospel of John. John, above any other writer in all of the rest of the whole of the Bible, John, I think we would all agree, those of us that would know the Bible maybe a little better than most, would say, you will find the doctrines of grace embedded in John's writings. Almost superior, in in a sense. Certainly Paul and Peter, no doubt. I'm not denying it. But, there are things in John's writings that can really shake your world. I'm going to ask our brother if he would play something. It's a two-minute two minute audio. Listen carefully to a question that a woman calls in on a Christian radio station asking for help to something that's greatly burdening her. And it doesn't say, she doesn't say specifically where she was reading. Just generalized her reading. But I have no doubt that she would be reading some of the verses that I'm going to quote to you and ask yourself the question as you listen to this, has that ever happened to me? Brother Nick, would you play that? It's exactly two minutes.
1: Oh, I'm good. Thank you. Good. Hey, um, my question for you is failed fatal determinism. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with what it is. I'm a Christian. I've been, been through my whole life. And up until a couple of years ago, I was a rather prideful Christian because I kind of had never done any of the dirty dozen type, you know. And so I figured God was really happy with me and so on. Well, then I went here a couple of years, It's a really hard time, and the Lord is the best time of my life spiritually. Hardest ever, but best time spiritually. And God just broke my heart and gave me so much compassion for people, for people I couldn't tolerate before. Yes. And I learned to see God as really, really good and very trustworthy. Yes. And as a result, I dove into scripture because I was like, I'm going to learn this word. I want God to use this." And in the last couple of months, I sunk into quite a depression because I came across the predestination verses. And I thought, I'll look up a commentary. I'll figure this out and move right on. And I got myself in way over my head. I read hours of debates and articles. And I don't believe fatal determinism is true. But now that I've heard it, I feel like I've been poisoned. And I don't know how to read the Bible anymore without hearing something negative. Because there's people I'm praying for, and now all I can think about is God himself may be my opponent. And if he is, then this is worse than atheism. Because if atheism were true, then nothing happens and you die. But if fatal determinism is true, and God created the majority of creation for His glory, do you go to hell, and then said, don't you ever question me, who are you to talk back to God? It just doesn't match the gift that I felt like I received in my relationship with God the last couple of years, and I just wondered if you have any advice for how to get that out of my head. Huh.
0: I wonder how many of us can relate to that, or at least can make reference to something like that in your life. Maybe currently even. Maybe some of those passages do trouble you. First of all, let me say, calling it fatal determinism is an errant expression to trying to describe passages in the Scripture that refer to God's predestinating purposes, number one. Secondly, I wouldn't ever think of being poisoned by the Bible, even if I don't understand what I'm reading. I do appreciate though her honesty, and she's obviously very emotional about it, And I would recommend to her, whoever she is, I would say, sister, praise the Lord you're reading the Bible. You're reading it seriously. The wrestling that you're going through is the wrestling that every Christian should go through who wants to take the Bible seriously. And I I praise God that you have noticed Texts like that that do talk about God's plan and His sovereignty. It just seems to run over us roughshod sometimes. It goes against our grain. It makes me feel like nothing. It makes me feel like I can't do anything. But what it does do, it augments the glory of God. And we want to praise Him for that. What can this girl do? I would say, sister, you need to sit down with a pastor who knows the Word, who's well-balanced, who can help you understand... Not that any pastor, anyone for that matter, is going to be able to perfectly satisfy even themselves, let alone perfectly satisfy anyone else on how to understand God's predestinating purposes. When we read in the Gospel of John some of these passages, you might better understand why it could be troublesome. Let me give you some examples. John 1 12, as many as received Him... Jesus says, they become the children of God. How do they do that? They're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Chapter 2.23, it says, Many believed on Him when they saw the miracles which He did, but Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. John 6.37, All that the Father hath given to Me shall come to Me. 6.44, No man comes to Me except the Father which has sent Him. Draw him... 665, no man can come to Me except for it were given unto Him of My Father. 831 says, many believed on Him. And Jesus goes on to say, you are of your father the devil. Those that believed on Him. That seems troublesome. Chapter 6, we have two. Those who are called disciples... Jesus began to talk about except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. It says from that time, they said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And from that time, many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. Jesus says to the remnant that's left behind, will you go away also? Peter responds, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Chapter ten, twenty-six. another shocking verse. You believe not because you are not of my sheep. 10.16 Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. 15.16 You have not chosen me, but what? I have chosen you. 17.2 Thou hast given him Jesus' prayer. Thou hast given him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as Thou hast given Him. In chapter 17, verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which Thou hast given Me, that they may be one and so on. That's just a sample in the Gospel of John of passages that almost seems to take away man's involvement in conversion. And it could almost deflate an evangelistic spirit that we all should have. I hesitate to say that John, above all other writers in the Bible, speak more of this subject because, of course, we have Pauline literature and Paul, Paul as we know, could use language like Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated or... Uh, for whom he did for no, he also did predestinate. And in that segment of the book of Romans that Paul writes there, he says right in the midst of it, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Even though he could, in the 11th chapter, say that hardness in part has happened to Israel, he's still praying, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Well, I could go on and try to be what I think that girl needs to get in touch with, someone who could settle their heart down without diminishing from the truth of the doctrine of God's sovereign will to do whatsoever He chooses. And who are we to reply against God? Shall a thing formed say to Him that formed it, Why hast Thou made me thus? I have to be willing to say, God, You are right 100%. My reasoning may not be able to comprehend that. And I have to put my own reasoning on hold and say, God, You are true and Your Word can never be broken. Anyway, I just thought I would make reference to that because John is heavy on the doctrines of God's predestinating purposes. And I think there's a reason for it. And that's why I mentioned the word disciple rather than the word apostle. And let me follow through with what I think, at least, is what I chose to be the theme of the book of John. And there could be various other ones, no doubt. Maybe better choices, too. I don't doubt that either. The choice that I made was this. How much do you love Jesus? Or I could have titled it, Following Jesus. When John the Baptist was baptizing, and he had numerous disciples around him... Jesus comes to the water of the Jordan and gets baptized. And when John sees Jesus come down the banks of the river Jordan, he says, and again, this is another unique thing about the Gospel of John, he describes him this way, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So suddenly now all eyes are turned towards Jesus. Behold, not me, behold the Lamb of God. And after Jesus was baptized, He says to His own disciples, Behold the Lamb. Not who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's already been said. Now behold the Lamb. And what does it say? And from that moment, many of John's disciples left Him and followed Jesus. Follow Jesus. Wow. Wow. When they begin to follow him and Jesus is walking along, he hears the footsteps, he turns back and his words, and this was the theme of our small group study, What are you looking for? would be one way of translating it. What are you seeking? It's really like, what do you want from me? What what do you think you're going to get in following me? Why are you following me? What do you want from me? What do we want? What does Jesus mean to us? How important is Jesus to you in your life versus people in your life? I was reading a book this past week. My daughter gave it to me. She said it was really not in her category. Um, And it wasn't. It was a book, I think, primarily for pastors. Rightfully so. So she gave it to me. And the author of the book says, I thought this was a really important point, that movements of God begin with a leader who knows God deeply. And, and I'll put a plural there. I don't like to think of a leader. But leaders are those, when movements begin, are those who love God deeply. But those same movement, he says, ends when the followers know only the leader or leaders deeply. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. There's something in that. One who's deeply in love with the Lord will be likely used in leading others in a movement or church planting. That's what he was suggesting in church planting. And most of the good church plants that you have seen with, the I can mention bunches of names... And we would say, yes, those are men of God. They love the Lord deeply. They know the Word. They're prayer people. There's another thing that convicted me. This same brother says to his, his a, a pastoral staff, he says, um, how many of you don't pray an hour a day? He says, if you don't, you're not going to be on the staff anymore. I'm like, ooh, man, that was a stab in the heart. That was quite the challenge. In other words, how close are we walking to the Lord? But what impressed me about this was a movement or a church plant or a church can fold because the followers only know the leader or leaders deeply. The leader knows the Lord deeply, but the people only know the leader deeply. Whereas if the people knew the Lord deeply, then that would be our heart's desire for the flock of Sovereign Grace Chapel that you would grow in the Lord, that you would mature, that you would be strong in the Lord and in the power of His and the might, that you would be able to be a fortress for Him and that you're leaning upon Jesus and though you might come up against all kinds of opposition, Christians that you almost sometimes have differences with, but you have to take a stand yourself and you're going to be strong in the Lord in that way. Following Jesus, how much do we love him? Jesus says, "I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness." Chapter 10:27. Jesus says, "My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me." Who's going to follow Jesus? Not goats. When a goat tries to follow, the voice becomes hollow. That is of the shepherd. The cost is too high. the way is too rigorous. The brakes get put on, and they get out. Because as he says in his epistle, they were not of us. I would call these, what John implies in his writings, they're pseudo-followers. See, when the going gets tough, it's been said the tough get going, but the weak, that is the weak believer, or the weak in profession, I should say, of faith, will retreat. I read to this week, where this is, this is a challenge of challenges. In Iran, you would think that would be the last place where God would be moving. Iran. Heavily, heavily populated with terrorists. The oppression of the government. And who would ever believe what I'm going to tell you? To join the church, to be a Christian and join the, the local church, there are three things that are required. One, you have to be willing to lose your property. Number two, to go to jail. And number three, to be martyred. You can't join the church unless you're willing to do all of the above. How about that? What are they saying? If the true work of God has begun in you, you will persevere. You will have a hope and you will have a treasure far greater than what time in the world can offer to you. And it happens to be the place on the globe right now that some believe that track this type of thing, that there is the greatest growth of Christianity going on in Iran rather than a country like America following Jesus. You know, John doesn't speak only, though, about Apostates, Apostate. There's no such thing in John's writing where someone follows and then kind of falls back or slips or goes the way of the world and falls out of communion with the Lord. Those that fall away are those that weren't His. John says this, 8.31, Jesus' words, If you continue in My Word, then are you My disciples indeed. Check this out yourself, but in John, it's, it's an imperative You know, you cannot disciple goats. You can't disciple an unregenerated person. John doesn't deal with backsliders, but rather apostates. You can't regenerate a person by discipling them. Or else they become unregenerated disciples. And I think there are cases where, lots of cases, where people naively and... These self-deceptively have fallen into a state where they are a good disciple, but they're not saved. Now that sounds like a contradiction. I think maybe some of you at least are getting the point that you can you can get someone to discipline their lives in a certain way. Coming to a church like this, maybe you see the life, like Britt was talking about, she felt so much safety, she felt, she felt at home, she felt comfortable. That's what a church could be and should be. We are more than just a big preaching body of people. We are a hospital, we help people, we want to heal people, we want to minister to one another in so many varieties of ways. And that can be a comfort zone for people. And you can fall into sort of a, a mode where you're just, sort of simon saysing everybody. Well, they do it, I'll do it. And, and, and you sort of get into a, a feeling of comfort and you've resided there without any uh, uncertainties because you have disciplined yourself. But, how much do you love Jesus? That's what really matters. Getting back to our original text, Peter is told by the Lord that when you're old... You're going to be dressed... Some interpreters would think that what Jesus was saying, you're going to be strapped like Jesus to a crucifix and nailed and, and you're going to die in that fashion. Peter refers to that in his epistle, by the way, that he said he must shortly put off his tabernacle. He knew that the Lord truth about how he was going to die wasn't going to come to pass. But then... When he hears about John, when Jesus ministers to John, he was interpreting Jesus' ministry to John like, well, Lord, what are you saying about him? Is he not going to die? And Jesus simply shuts him off and says, Peter, Peter, forget about John. Forget about him. You, it's it's an exclamation. You, you, you follow me. I just told you to feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lamb. You follow me. The greatest joy that anyone can have in this world is following Jesus. Can you say amen, folks? The greatest joy in the world is to follow Jesus. Everybody is following something, somebody. Was it um, um, Bob Dylan said in one of his songs... When he was on his Christian bandwagon, you gotta serve somebody. It's it's either gonna be the devil or it's gonna be the Lord. But you gotta serve somebody. And when you serve the Lord, when you belong to Him, when you're regenerated by Him, I can't take away your love from you. I might I might be a bad pastor to me to you. I might be a bad example. There may be a problem that comes up in the church that splits us wide open. But what can't come between you and the Lord is all of that above. So no matter what happens in this life, lose your best friend, lose your your, your wife, your husband, your children, or whatever, you still have the love of the Lord in you. It's born in you. And that's what draws us to Him, and we want to follow Him. There's an old song that came out, I believe it was in the... 50's or 60's and I believe it was played in that movie of the Sisters Act remember that was called the Sisters Act I will follow Him follow Him wherever He may go there isn't an ocean too deep a mountain so high it can keep keep me away away from my love that's the Lord Jesus I love Him I love Him I love Him and where He goes I will follow I will follow. How much do you love the Lord? I hope that we, when the Lord looks back at us and says, what do you want? What do you want from me? Where are you going? Where do you think I'm going to take you? Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure you want to follow me? Lord, I love you. Peter says, I'll die with you. Praise the Lord. Peter loved him. Peter loved him. Peter was willing at the end of his life to die the Lord as Jesus described it. I wonder how much we love Him. If you know the love of God towards you by His Son dying on the cross of Calvary to bear the punishment of your sins, then you are His. You have believed on Him. You've trusted Him and Him only. Our sister Britt, our sister Mickey that gave their testimonies, they're trusting the Lord Jesus for salvation and trusting Him for the course of life. Our sister had some ups and downs there. And maybe it would have stayed down, sister. Would you still have been able, and I think from the sound of her testimony, it was like, if the Lord grants it, praise Him. If He denies Him, I'm still going to praise Him. His purposes are far greater than what I can comprehend and maybe what I want to accept for myself in this life. Though it may not be my wishes, though it may not be pleasurable for me to have to go through it, but if He orders it, I must take it. And I pray that the Lord would give me a gladness of heart to be able to receive what He allows for me in my life. The key, brothers and sisters, I think, in the epistle of John is the disciples of Jesus following Him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you are following the devil. You're on the broad road that leads to destruction. And Jesus is still calling in the wilderness... Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you. Who, who is that? I don't know who you are. I don't know if God has predestinated you. As a matter of fact, I don't care. That's all I know is what He tells me to do to broadcast the gospel and tell the world of sinners lost and ruined by the fall. Salvation's full at highest cost. He offers free. To all. If you're not a follower of Jesus, might you even now in your heart repent towards God. Call out to Him. Say, Lord, have mercy upon me. Regenerate my heart. Breathe into me the breath of life that I might follow You, that I might trust You, that I might know You as my Lord and Savior. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, our great captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus. Thank You, O God, for parting with Your Son in the season when He was here in this world so that He could bear the punishment of the sins of the sheep for whom He was to die. Lord, we rejoice that we are the sheep of the Great Shepherd. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for working in our souls and creating in us desires for Thyself that we would not otherwise have contemplated. Thank You, Lord, that we can this morning give praise to You in helping, Lord, from on high. As we cry out to You, Lord, that You would give us, Lord, an unction uh, ongoingly to be able to continue to keep close to the Lord Jesus, to follow Him, and to have those challenging words, What are You looking for? Oh, Lord, might we be satisfied with You and You only? And whatever else, Lord, we have or don't have, Just having You, Lord, is our greatest treasure. And may each and every one of us treasure You, Lord Jesus, and make You the Lord of our lives. May we have a spirit like the Lord Jesus advised Peter. What is that to Thee? Follow Thou Me. Oh Lord, help us to put aside everything and anybody else, Lord, in our lives that would come between us and You, Lord. And may we continually own You as the Lord of our lives. We ask these things, giving You praise in worship. O oh, Father, in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.